We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of First Family on December 25th, 1980. It was written and directed by Buck Henry and released by Warner Brothers. Eliza Dushku will be born five days from now. Because <laughs> it's close to a birthday as any movies would release. The ending we saw was entirely reshot after an overwhelmingly negative test screening. I have to assume they didn't test screen this ending either. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't time. We'll just go with this. And they must have only shown the ending to people before. (laughs) Why would they only reshoot the ending? I mean, this ending does feel like it was tacked on, but we'll get there. (laughs) Maybe. We open with a title card that reads, Politics is not an exact science. Otto von Bismarck. This is an actual quote from Otto von Bismarck. Who was who? He was the first chancellor of the German Empire. It's not interesting or relevant to the story at all, I didn't think. Um, other than that they involve people in government. But it seems really, like a joke would have worked it's, here. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not really, a, this movie isn't about politics at all. No. They just happen to be... Politicians? Politicians, yeah. Yeah, it's a workplace comedy. <laughs> it's a workplace comedy. Essentially. We start the film with an address from the American president over black. The list of names we see during this opening credits is insane. Gilda Radner, Bob Newhart, Madeline Kahn. We fade up on a television beside a fireplace at night as two people are having sex and ignore it. Or I guess they're gearing up for sex. They're still rounding the bases. It's called foreplay, Patrick. Yes. <laughs> I, f- I forget the word. I've researched it a bit. Uh, more names show up. Richard Benjamin, love him. Bob Dishy, great. Harvey Corman, love him. Austin Pendleton, these are wonderful people. Rip Torn, Fred Willard, what is going on? This movie is going to be bad. I already know. And there's this many people that I like in a row in a movie. It's not good. You just can't do it because you don't carve out enough space for everybody to be great. Yeah. Although I think Anchorman did a pretty good job, speaking of Fred Willard. Music credit here is given to John Philip Sousa, who composed all the most famous American military marches, which will be used in place of a score by the film. Suddenly, the couple about to have sex are interrupted when the Secret Service busts in and takes the girl away. Gilda Radner, uh, who is playing Gloria, what is the last name? Link. Link. Gloria Link, the daughter of the president, it turns out. And she apologizes to the man she's being taken away from. Her father is the one on the television here. Most surprisingly, none of these Secret Service agents stay behind to question the man who was here with the president's daughter. You'd think that someone would have been in charge of taking his information and accusing him of something falsely. We learn from the broadcast on the television that Link won the presidential election by a slim majority over a candidate who the president and vice president were both killed in a car accident three days before the election, which plays no part moving forward. But, uh, the the person on television says Uh, yes but that victory must be weighed against the fact that his opponents the presidential and vice presidential candidates of my party were killed in that tragic automobile accident three days before the election 
Yet it must be remembered that nearly 30 million Americans actually voted for the two corpses. As she has walked into the White House, Gloria hits on one of the agents outside the White House doors. In the Oval Office, President Link is signing a pile of bills surrounded by various government employees and asking for details on the situation that his daughter was just extracted from. The vice president repeatedly requests to keep one of the pens from this bill signing because he always asks and he never gets anything. Link tells the agents to do a better job of keeping his daughter out of these situations. At the end of the signing, there is one pen left over, and they determine that it was meant for the senator from Rhode Island, who, like his state, is smaller than a typical senator. Get it? Link makes him jump to reach for the pen. In the East Wing, the First Lady Constance Link, played by Madeline Kahn, is lecturing her daughter Gloria on the public perception of her actions. People think she's a nymphomaniac, which makes her job harder. Gloria complains that she's 28, and she has had to maintain her celibacy since the start of her father's political career. But her mom says, as soon as his second term is over, you can start whoring it up. Nobody cares anymore. For the record, Gilda is only four years younger than Madeline Kahn playing her mother here. But she's playing a 28-year-old. Yeah. Right, but she's also playing her daughter. I know. I'm just, I'm just trying to explain that she's not like she's actually a child in this. She's, she's supposed to be a yeah. full-grown woman. It's not a Gilda Radner SNL character playing a child. Yeah. Although that would have been fine, too. They could have said she was seven. I don't care. Nymphomaniac at seven. Maybe. Constance tries to set her daughter up with the ugly gay son of a member of Link's cabinet, but she doesn't seem interested. Gloria describes her ideal date being gang-raped by a team of strangers. We cut to the arrival of the delegation from Upper Gorma at the United Nations. The American ambassador, Spender, is moderating a vote with the ambassador from UFAR which I don't think we ever get spelled out what UFAR stands for. Right, but they're supposed to be some sort of Middle Eastern Yeah, country. some Middle Eastern oil-producing country. When the UFAR ambassador blows his nose loudly, Spender makes a comment about it, and the UFAR guy just starts going off on him. The same joke for the rest of this scene is that Spender says something racist, and then UFAR responds through a translator saying something vulgar. So a translator is forced to recite this vulgar insult monotonously. Please inform my distinguished colleague that such epithets are better reserved for these savages he so obviously represents. Uh, considering the uh, amount of oil exported by my country to his country, <laughs> the uh, American ambassador, like his government, knows what section of my uh, savage anatomy he may kiss. Eventually, Ufar's insults get so personal as to cause Spender to fly off the handle, and he leaves the UN demanding a personal apology in exchange for his return. The Upper Gorma delegation waits in the lobby, and the American representatives start a race with the representatives of an Asian country, I think Japan. Um, it, 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 they never say. It they just, just it play just sort happens. of. But I, I think because uh, one of the actors here is credited as a as a Japanese ambassador. Um, also, as if the verbal racism in this movie isn't enough, the musical racism. Yes. Where, right. Where, you get the... the Chinese like chiming music. Yeah, and every then when, time they show and when the it shows the yeah, and then when it shows the gourmet 
uh, delegation. It's just drums. Yeah, and the Americans, it's always like a marching. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I don't even understand why they're racing against each other here. It's yeah, like, we haven't made it clear yet why this is important. But I, but I don't think they ever make it clear because I understand that there's a vote that they want to get these guys on their side. But I think the other people are on the other side of the vote. They're oh okay, so they they they're trying to win them over and by getting there first and yeah okay. to make a good impression first. But both sides reach them simultaneously, and they just sort of pile up into each other over the couches in front of the characters and i guess they thought this was this was funny at the white house army chief dunston played by rip torn barges into the office of presidential assistant feebleman played by fred willard he wants to know about the disastrous talks at the u.n this morning he thinks spender had an easy vote to win and he blew it suddenly a string of bed sheets drops down from outside feebleman's window dunston is confused by this but apparently for Feebleman, this is a routine occurrence. Gloria is trying to escape the White House in pursuit of more sex. The implication being that the office and residential portions of the White House overlap at all, which I don't think they do. I think they're in opposite wings. Yeah. Um, also, though, this is one of the funnier moments of the movie where you just see all the stuff going on outside the window. And nobody's doing anything about it. Yeah. Um, but this movie has many many missed opportunities for something yes. to be really funny or to turn something around and not go the way that's so obvious because what's going on in the background is she looks like she's about to subdue some gardener and it's a really funny kind of standoff that they're having like like she's Gilda Radner's character is like prowling towards them and then they just tackle each other and they keep rolling out of the bushes and being yeah. dragged back in and I thought how this joke was going to go was Gilda Radner was going to come out dressed as the gardener, and and then the gardener was going to be apprehended oh, dressed okay. as Gilda Radner because you see the gardener tuck tuck their clothes together and then run off, and I was like, oh, so that was Gilda Radner running off as the gardener, but then she comes back running running into the window. Yeah. So I don't I don't know where that joke was supposed to go i thought it was just she wanted to have sex with the gardener mm. because she just wants sex with literally anybody and she saw a man and she's like i'm gonna have sex with that guy um but it didn't work out for her dunston wants to know why so much effort was put into meeting with the upper gorman delegation feebleman explains that upper gorma is rich with elements needed by the military sector and in exchange they offer them american goods like rayon, Coca-Cola syrup, TV repair manuals, etc. Outside, we see Gloria attack a landscaper behind a bush, and then a whole team of White House officials come out trying to find her. Feebleman says that if they can win over the ambassador from Upper Gorma, they can regain the swing vote that they lost from Ufar this morning. When Dunstan learns that the Gorma delegation is staying in the White House, he is so shocked that he destroys a model ship on Feebleman's mantle. I think he's a... He's literally offended that they're letting African people stay yeah. at the White House. You know, it's it's really funny that you say that now because you, you said it with another thing earlier when we were discussing it. I feel like there's so many jokes in this movie I don't get because of the racism. And yeah. it's like, what? 
what why is like i i didn't understand that that what, what that, is shocking him here that's making him destroy yeah thing? i'm like well he just destroyed it is it supposed to be funny because he just broke a thing like i didn't understand that he was shocked at at letting a black family into the white house like it, that didn't even cross my mind but i think <laughs> that's the implication here and like you mentioned there's another joke coming up where i just have to guess at the racist joke that's being told because it's not clear enough before he leaves dunstan is informed at ambassador longo's request that they are holding a costume gala tonight and that the theme is american holidays dunstan announces that he has no intention of wearing a costume to an official white house event the president meets in the hallway with the press secretary bunthorne played by richard benjamin to request that he try to convince people that the white house is totally comfortable having black people as guests yes 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 just uh, try to make it look like we're glad to have a lot of a lot of black people in the in the white house like we're um comfortable exactly just as they're walking out the door the first lady suddenly runs back into the white house as if she's just realized she lost something she uh she forgot her camera what is this what is the joke here i don't know but it just goes on because we solid... just hear her footsteps walking around the yeah. house for a long time yeah and we get a, a quick cutaway of gilda radner trying to cut her way out of some bars that they've installed yeah I think the joke here is that she just realized that there's going to be black people in the White House. So she went to go hide things like jewelry and stuff. Mm. But I don't know what's going on. I can only guess at what the right. racist joke was here. Because it's cause, not like she comes back with anything. Nope. But but she makes this realization like, oh, you're right. And then leaves right after they just said, make it look like we're happy that black people are coming to the White House. The president waits at the curb for the first lady to return, and upstairs we see Gloria, like you said, using a saw to cut the bars off of her bedroom window. Apparently, Gilda's room is the entire upstairs of the White House. It yeah. points out every window above every door. When the first lady returns, she trips and falls face first into the waiting limousine, and they head off to the airport to receive the delegation. On the incoming plane, Ambassador Spender has fallen asleep and awakens to the sound of liquid pouring. From our perspective, it looks like someone is peeing, and Spender looks understandably disgusted, but we zoom out a bit to show that someone's just pouring a drink for the ambassador from Upper Gorma, and now Spender looks less understandably disgusted. Yeah. Because nothing weird is happening around him, unless he's upset about the way that they pour drinks. As they approach Washington, Longo tells one of his underlings, Pachumanchika which Spender then translates from a book to understand that Longo has just requested a human sacrifice, presumably to guarantee a safe landing of the plane. Suddenly, trash is blowing all around the cabin as his entourage throws someone from the plane. We watch the person plummet and eventually land outside the airport where the president is awaiting their arrival. A red carpet is rolled out for Longo and his delegation to approach the president. A band plays the American National Anthem, and then the Upper Gorma National Anthem. Their anthem involves largely drums, and I think, again, was intended as a joke, but this could easily be a national anthem of an African country. It's not, like, exaggerated or weird enough yeah. to be a joke. Yeah. That's my problem here. This isn't a racist enough. <laughs> <laughs> the joke for the rest of this scene is that in place of learning English or employing translators, Longo has memorized random English phrases from a book and just blurts out random irrelevant passages over and over again. 
may I have peas instead of beans? The only joke in the scene that is mildly funny is when the first lady says, yes. Like she's answering his question legitimately, not realizing that he's being weird. The president is obviously disappointed to learn that these important allies that they need to make a deal with are unable to communicate with them at all. Yeah, uh, and a perfect missed opportunity for a joke because Bob Newhart starts his sentence, What you're telling me is what we have here. I was like, please say is a, a failure, failure to, to communicate. communicate. Yeah. He's a bunch of very important visitors. And but he no. doesn't. No. And only, that joke would have been great because Cool Hand Luke would have been, it would have existed. Yeah. yeah. But this isn't a reference movie. This is a racism movie. <laughs> he instructs Spender to locate the only man in America with any knowledge of their language. The president is gifted a large rock, which the delegation calls Jukara. The president's handlers then wave a Geiger counter over it, which is a remarkable instinct of theirs to be yeah. like, hmm, I wonder how radioactive this is. And it crackles away like a ton of Byzanium. <laughs> you just happen to have that on you. Yeah. Why would you have that? Everywhere they keep it. Well, what, what I, as soon as he opened the box, I was like, oh my God, please just let this be uranium. Yeah. His arms just start bubbling like William Hurt's. <laughs> <laughs> On the ride back to the White House, President Link operates a puppet of himself sticking out of the sunroof as it is pelted with things by people on the street. When the puppet's head eventually is knocked off, it rolls down the street terrifying people. So my assumption is, is I, I'm not t- entirely clear if it's supposed to look more real than it is or if the joke is that it doesn't look real but people think it's real. I think it's just supposed to be a bad puppet of him. Yeah. Right, but people think it's real because yeah. that lady is screaming her head off when the when, when right. the, yeah. the puppet's head falls off. Well, the, a lot of the mileage comes from people just being stupid in general. Like the general public are just dumb. Right, but they're throwing stuff at it, which I assumed was because they also thought it was real right. and actually him. Right. And uh, I imagine also that when this vehicle is moving at a relative speed down these, the road. You can't really tell for sure. Maybe. But that guy's shot was amazing. <laughs> yeah, he hits it twice, right? Dr. Alexander Grade is collected just outside of his workplace by the Secret Service and delivered to the president. When Grade is let in, he finds President Link in a George Washington costume for the party. Link and Longo... <laughs> at this point, I had forgotten that there was a party. And I was like, what yeah. is he wearing? What? That's what presidents wear. <laughs> well, and, and and Austin Pendleton breaks. Yeah. He, he just, just starts, starts laughing. laughing. And I was just like, okay, is this some? Is this like a real moment or or what? No, I think he's, it's just supposed to be like, isn't it funny that he's wearing a George Washington costume and he's the president? Link and Longo are brought into a press conference. Link is still in costume. Grade is asked to translate a message from Longo. As the letter is read to the press, Link is surprised to learn that Longo expects a visit in return and intends to offer them every amenity, among other promises. And uh, we solemnly give our promise not to eat them. This joke comes very close to being funny until it is retracted as a Hawatuni. Hawatuni. Ah, oh. Oh. A joke. The ambassador was making a howatuni um, joke. And, uh, and a, a very, a very amusing howatuni. Yes. Hmm? And how about the going to Gorm part? That was not a howatuni, sir. Here's an exciting moment. This is the first of two times that I laughed out loud in the film. We have a pair of White House geologists that are analyzing satellite photography of Upper Gorm, 
and have a number of unique geological structures circled on their map. One of them is impressed enough to whistle at what he sees. And soon they are both whistling at each other. And Spender is standing with them and he's just confused like, what are you guys whistling at? I don't understand. We cut to the dinner where the president's family are all dressed in powdered wigs. Others are in Native American or pilgrim garb. Gloria is sitting opposite the translator, Dr. Grade, and makes flirty eyes at him as she fillets an enormous carrot she found somewhere. Link offers Longo a taste of their finest wine, and Longo offers him some of their national drink in return. Longo is most impressed by the Chapelet Chardonnay 76, and Link takes a sip of Longo's beverage before the translator can tell him what it is. Donkey blood um, and cow urine, August. This so, is the second and I think last solid laugh of the film. <laughs> that he's that the inclusion of August is what killed me. The um, so the scene earlier when he's pouring this same drink and we think it's urine, it actually is urine. Mm. Oh, when he's drinking it on the plane. <laughs> and yeah. the plane, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, this is for me. This was another missed opportunity for a really funny twist on the joke, because how the scene is played is Bob Newhart gets up and leaves to go throw up. Yeah, which I think is too obvious. I think it would have been funnier if he goes, it's actually not that bad. Like, like, yeah. like, yeah. like, cause he sips it and doesn't react much to it. Yeah. Like he's not repulsed. Yeah. And, and it, it would have been funny. Like, he's like, he, we need to get some of these cows. Well, or, or, or just been like, you know, uh, you know, February was a better month that year. Yeah. You know, yeah, just like, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or <laughs> don't these savages know <laughs> anything, but, but where you would expect it to go, which was, him just gross gross and grossed out it looks like they employed a practical effect of shining a green light in his face to show that he's getting sick but in the transfer that we were watching on sd it's almost impossible to tell other than that the lighting gets turned up a lot on his face and then he rushes away to throw up and everyone at the dinner is free to have fun as soon as the president's gone spender visits the president in the restroom and suggests that they assemble the security council immediately Oh, th- I actually laughed out loud at this one because he's like, Sir, I think we should assemble the National Security Council immediately. In here? If not in here, of course. In the Oval, Grade is introduced to all of the major players. Feebleman is dressed as the Santa Maria. Bunthorn is dressed as Cupid. A.G. Scott is dressed as a turkey. All these costumes, by the way, are super corny and ridiculous. CIA director Willie O'Malley is a leprechaun. For St. Patrick's Day. VP Shockley is the Easter Bunny. SecDef Springfield is a Christmas tree. Secretary of State Regal is, and this took some research on our part, <laughs> he's Father Time. Mm. He's in a white robe carrying a scythe and a baby for okay. New Year's. But when we first saw it, we were like, I mean, but my first bad. guess was that's baby New Year's that he's holding, but why is he an old man with a scythe? And then we looked it up, and that's the official mascot of New Year's. I've well, never seen it before. I mean, I guess that is the representation of Father Time who would represent New Year's. But I I thought Father Time was like uh, he had a clock on his necklace. Yeah, he's, no, he does. No. <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> never mind. It's uh, you who and friends. It's a, it's a cartoon that Jesse worked on. <laughs> where Flava Flav did a voice on it, and he was Father Time yeah. on the show. <laughs> the last costume is Army Chief Dunstan as an enormous jack-o'-lantern. 
and all the costumes take a seat and listen to a speech from President Link. He tells them that he was basically ambushed with the news that he'd be headed to Upper Gorm, and he tells them about the rock that he received as a gift from the delegation. Evidently, it's a chunk of rock from their sacred volcano on the island called Giacomo. They perform some tests on the rock, and it is high in uranium-238. They suspect, based on these satellite images, that the Gourmets may have nuclear capability. The entire group in the Oval Office vote that Link should go through with the visit because they're, they're basically worried that these people are going to nuke the country if mm-hmm. he doesn't go. But they end up all going with him, so... Yeah. The next day, driving to the airport, four Secret Service agents are standing guard around the president's vehicle, like, standing up on the outside of it, which, the only time I've ever seen it was in the footage of Reagan's attempted assassination. Right. Where they threw him in the car and then rode on the outside as they were leaving. But I don't think you would normally have Secret Service agents stationed on the outside of the vehicle. Right. Gloria rolls down her window to grab one of these men by the crotch, and he's so distracted that he falls off the car into the street. Before they board the plane, they all listen to a speech from Father Sandstone, who insists that the first family must believe in God if they're willing to get on this flying contraption. The Reverend here is being played by our film's writer-director, Buck Henry. For some reason, on the flight over, Grade is trying to teach the president to speak Gourmets, like that isn't the whole reason that he's going. Link is having a difficult go of it and quits the lesson. He shares with Grade a nightmare that he has, a recurring nightmare where he's eating clear soup. And that's the whole nightmare. I don't know why that's even a nightmare. They arrive in Upper Gorm, and it sort of resembles King Louis' part of the jungle in the Jungle Book. It's just like half-collapsed buildings and like (laughs) flat rock structures. As they approach the nation's leader, Link asks, Which one of them is the head boogeyman? And then a man steps forward and introduces himself. I am the head boogeyman. Which one of you is the chief turkey? We cut to a dinner where a full-size alligator, question mark, has been eaten, uh, almost down to a skeleton. After a ceremonial dance, a gourmet comedian takes the stage and does a bit of stand-up, but the jokes are all lost in translation for the Americans. Next, a woman with a large snake is invited on stage for our second consecutive movie with someone wrapped in a snake. <laughs> Link asks President Calundra where he learned to speak English so good, and he says that his father, the late great dictator of this nation, sent him to the University of Miami. The woman on stage is killed by her snake, and Feebleman faints to see it. Link and Calundra go for a walk together, and Calundra says that he is prepared to trade them for the vote in the UN, because he knows that's the only reason they're here. You want to vote in the UN? Are you interested in what we want? Upper Gorma is not a super state on account of not meeting the last requirement of his definition. He shares with Link the one thing they don't have. And what is that? Oh, can't you guess what it is? No. A repressed minority. What? We are prepared to purchase from you at a reasonable price several hundred middle-class white Americans, various religions, ages, and uh, occupations. As you might uh, say in your country, a mixed bag of honkies. Link objects on moral grounds until President Kalundra points to his alcoholic wife and nymphomaniac daughter as signs that he doesn't have the moral high ground here. Link informs Kalundra that, despite public opinion, his daughter is actually a virgin. 
and everyone retires to their rooms for the night. Gloria and Grade wander out into the jungle together, and she starts undressing him until he leaves her and she is stolen away by a group of Gourmet's men. We cut to her in the middle of a stage wearing an Afro wig for some reason. Dr. Grade is tied to a post, and he screams out for her when Calundra says that she will be a bride for Jacumba. They turn a gear to lift a statue with a huge erection from underground. Apparently the deal is she has sex with this statue and that will stop the volcano from erupting maybe? Like Joe versus the volcano style, but it also guarantees them a prosperous year in terms of crops. He shows President Link the results of their prosperous farming and their fertilizer renders plants of enormous proportions. They're like 10 foot long carrots, celery as tall as trees, in Link's head, he's hearing all the awards that he'll be getting for bringing this technology back to America, and immediately we cut to Link signing a deal with Kalundra, locking in the UN vote, presumably in exchange for those American slaves and information leading to the mass production of this magical fertilizer. I, I chuckled at a joke in this where when the president signs his document, they come in with the ink drying rollers yeah uh and then when uh Calundra signs his they he, just push the person's head yeah they just roll a person's head back and forth on it <laughs> but why did to, you to laugh soak at up that? The, because it's a little funny i don't know what's funny about that it's funny because that's a ridiculous way to do what they were doing with the other tool that's why okay you got it now nope that's weird you should be laughing <laughs> <laughs> keep in mind it it was after so much other stuff has happened. No, you're desperate. I get it. I, I, I was like, I was like that, that's a funny gag. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to him. I don't know. I think that one came up and I'm like, what? And I wanted to turn it off. Apparently, nobody else in government has been able to read what the treaty says because it's entirely in Gourmet's. Why would you sign it without grade reading it? Well, he knows what it says because he spoke with the guy who they made the contract with. Oh, so I. Oh, okay. I see. So the implication is he knows he what wants is, to be famous. For what bringing is owed this, to them, and yeah. he thinks that it's a fair price to pay for yes. what he's going to get for it. But nobody else knows what's in this contract. Correct. The president is the only one who knows. Okay. The news reports that the president has hired landscapers to decorate the grounds around Washington D.C. And that he's been working on this contract that he's going to sign with the Gourmets and that nobody knows what it says and nobody knows what he's doing in there. They just hear him laughing to himself uh, and smiling and he seems like he's in a really good mood about this contract. The man reporting this news on the television is the second character to be played by our writer-director Buck Henry. A stage is constructed in the middle of an open field somewhere for the president to give an address. Grade arrives early and starts looking for Ambassador Longo when he is kidnapped by the rest of the higher-level White House staff who want him to read the contract. The president starts his speech, but the wind quickly blows it all off of his podium, and he is forced to improvise. Grade is handed the contract and asked to read it to the men in the car with him. The president's speech transforms into just a retelling of random events of his childhood, and suddenly it's about how when you're a child, things seem bigger, and he seems on his way to announce the technology that he intends to acquire from Upper Gorm. In the car with Grade, Spender learns that the contract calls for the sale of 1,500 Americans. Spender starts the car, and Grade says that the citizens are being traded for 20,000 gallons of fertilizer, 
but Grade reads it as shit from the contract, and Spender assumes that the president has just gone completely crazy and agreed to trade Americans for feces. He guns it for the stage, where the president is now promising gargantuan fruits and vegetables and sounding like a complete madman. Feebleman and Bunthorn try to walk the president off the stage, and Spender's car ramps up the side of the stage, and ultimately it is the first lady and daughter who are able to pull the president out of the car's path. When it lands on the stage, though, the platform cracks in half and launches the first family into the sky, and it's also throwing barrels at all the TV cameras, so the right. cameramen are shutting off their cameras and falling off the platform. So, it just occurred to me, this island that they're from has all this, like, some sort of radioactive material on mm. it. Is that why the food is enormous? I think it, that's the implication, yeah. And so this fertilizer has some sort of some sort of power to make the food enormous because it's been like i feel like it wouldn't be safe to eat i guess that's what i'm getting at like, yeah. it might be huge but you can't eat it yeah but it's also like late 70s early 80s view of like radiation can give you superpowers and make things magically but grow. maybe it's also like the mushrooms in our last movie though it doesn't affect the natives in the same way that it affects foreigners because they've been having it for generations that night, the Supreme Court meets in a secret session. The first family is all here in casts and bandages. The justice asks about the contract and how to void it, if at all possible. Spender has a plan. The last thing that the camera saw before they shut off was the car destroying the podium. The Americans haven't heard what the contract included, and they don't even really know what happened after the accident. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court makes a bold declaration to avoid a lengthy impeachment trial. Mr. President, it is the decision of this body that in order to save this nation from the embarrassment of a long and painful impeachment, and in the interest of preserving the good name of your office, and of protecting all of us from the scorn and derision of the outside world, we now pronounce you dead. An effort is made to swear in VP Shockley, and he suffers an instant and fatal heart attack under the pressure of the presidency. He never even finishes his vows, so he's never technically sworn in, though on television they claim he was president for five to six seconds. The next news story is about enormous vegetables, like the ones the president was describing, growing in all the recently planted gardens around D.C. It's essentially a precursor to the moment in Mike Judge's idiocracy, where Secretary of Interior, not sure is granted a reprieve when it's discovered that his novel approach to agriculture, i.e. watering plants, has actually been shown to work. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops? Yes. Water. Like out the toilet? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be out of the toilet, but, but yeah, that's the idea. But Brando's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. In this movie, the dead president, who insanely they haven't killed yet, is approached to move forward with the contract with the gourmets. I don't know why they need the old president for this. Couldn't they just reach out to the gourmets and say the contract is still on? I mean, yeah, because there's, there's never been a, a situation where the, you know, President Calandra has said that I'll only work Right, there's, there's nothing president special Link. about Link. Yeah. If he is to come back, the president wants more vacations, the first lady wants to redecorate, and Gloria wants a statue with a big dick to have sex with. The president is being spoon-fed clear soup as he reminds the men 
that they will need to sacrifice a virgin every year to keep the crops plentiful. Wait a minute. They think I'm dead. Yes, yes. This will be the greatest sales pitch in the history of campaigns. Once every 2,000 years or so, a man of vision, a man who can work miracles, returns to lead his people. The people are so stupid that they buy into this resurrection story completely. The people applaud the family the whole way back to the White House. And Gloria notices the Gourmet statue is now in the White House lawn and winks at it as it gets a massive stone erection. The end. A stoner? Uh, there you go. No. Oh, what I wanted to happen here was when they're driving to the White House um, and you see... The, the giant vegetables the, and stuff? Well, no, you see the uh, the first family standing out of the sunroof of the car as it's approaching the White House. I wanted them to cut inside the car and they're all down there like... Controlling and, them. And the president's just like, wow, these things are getting better every year. But Or that it's puppets in the car controlling the people. Oh, my God. <laughs> or then, his head falls off. Something. And just blood starts <laughs> gushing out. But, yeah, that's the end of the film. So I'm guessing that the reshoots started with them finding the giant vegetables because we never actually see the giant vegetables we just see them run up to look at them and then their shocked oh, faces no. as we, see, we see them we see them in gorm no we no, see we, them, we see them like in, around dc they show DC. there's like a bunch of watermelon in front of the white house and they're... right there's like matte paintings yes of them. yes yeah. but what i wanted to see was the actual props oh, okay yeah which we, we never see actually those. see mm. Um, and I kept thinking they were going to do it when they were like running up to the Capitol building mm-hmm. and they look over the bushes and I just wanted that just a reverse angle of a big carrot or something. Yeah. And there's nothing. They never show any of them up close. Yeah. The um, whole resurrection thing like that seems all yeah. tacked on. I, I, I'm curious how it was originally going to end. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I hope it was just like really dark that he's like, I think it was, I think it was sadder the original ending. But it would have made more sense if they were going to put him in hiding to kill him immediately. Because if you're just like, we now pronounce you dead and, and then shoot him. And, and and it's a really interesting location because it looks real. This tiny little house is in the corner of yeah. a massive parking lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, where they're keeping them like yeah. witness protection. Yeah. This movie was awful. It's really bad. Really so bad. So bad. It had so much going for it in terms of cast and like. And Buck Henry's I, not I an idiot. I was going to say, I thought I liked Buck Henry, but I don't I know. I do I'm like Buck Henry. This, was a, right this is a bad day for Buck Henry. I think the reshoot is part of the problem. I think that he had a lot of people saying, you're not a director, and he was he was letting other people guide his hand a lot of the way because it doesn't even feel like a Buck Henry script. I, <sighs> I think he took too many notes from people. Buck Henry created Get Smart, mm-hmm. and he wrote on that show for a long time. Like Those jokes are just funny. They're just funny jokes based on the reality of the scene that's going on. And this is in the same vein of that kind of a comedy. It's just a parody in like a government-oriented. Yeah. There's no reason this couldn't have been like Get Smart but about a president. But it's it's just gross. It becomes gross because Gilda Radner is reduced to this one-dimensional mm-hmm. like sex fiend character that every comedy in the 80s had this character and it's never been a real person. And so it's just not fun to watch. And it's not funny. It's a waste of her abilities. And Madeline Kahn gets nothing to do for the yeah. third time this year. Yeah. Three movies have wasted her this year. Well, and, and the worst scene for her is when she's trying to explain how wonderful it is to see black people in the White House. It's like they're always so well-mannered and well-dressed. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. And it's like, this is, why is this a joke? Why, why is this the constant joke? Yeah. Because if you were, 
if you're a racist person you're not going to even get that that's a joke mm-hmm. like you're not get, you're not going to be self-critical about that because you're going to think like oh those are nice things that she's saying and you're not going to think about how condescending and shitty it is uh, unless and, and unless you made that the joke like oh he's the president but he's super racist like and that's not funny but it's it's less funny to just to have him say it all the time yeah yeah I don't know. Like, because like you look at like what Carol Carol O'Connor on uh on the family, right? Like he's America's racist. favorite racist. Yeah, he's racist. Well, for a long time he was anyway. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they traded him in. Uh, but that's like part of the joke is that he's in the wrong. Yeah, and and you're supposed to be laughing at him. Yeah, and and that that doesn't happen in this. He he in everyone is on his side. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and that, that, that's not how it should be. That's not funny. Really, the only person who's not is Kalunda, and well, and, that character doesn't get enough pushback. And I was gonna say there, there. I think there is something funny to reversing the racism and 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 saying, hey, now we in order to sell us white people, right? In order to be what like you are, sell us sell us a minority sell us white people but that doesn't really get explored a lot Mm -hmm. right and they don't actually have anything to gain by becoming a super state as he says because it's not going to change their land mass it's not going to change the way their country runs at all he he just wants to be looked at as more like other countries yeah but I don't think that would happen even if they had a subjugated race of people in their No, country. but but I I do like that joke sure. in, in in and of itself that that is the thing that then sets you apart. Right. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Joe versus the volcano because the plot's similar where uh Lloyd Bridges wants the mineral rights. Yeah, but... and they give him Joe as a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Our writer director here was Buck Henry. We've discussed his work earlier this year as the writer of and actor in our Patreon review of Catch-22. He also created Get Smart, which was adapted into this year's feature film, The Nude Bomb. And he also appeared in Gloria this year as a leaky bookie whose son is entrusted to the care of a badass neighbor lady. He also wrote The Owl and the Pussycat, which was not selected by our patrons this year. And Day of the Dolphin, which was inspired by the works of the same scientist, John C. Lilly, as our previous film, Altered States. He also wrote The Graduate and What's Up, Doc. One of his later roles was as Liz Lemon's father, Dick Lemon, on 30 Rock. Wouldn't be a lemon party without old Dick. This was his first film directing solo after having co-directed Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. Cinematographer Fred J. Konekamp. Earlier this year, he was a DP on When Time Ran Out and The Hunter. He also lensed Papillon, Towering Inferno, and Patton. Editor Stu Linder... He was an editor for My Bodyguard this year, as well as Diner, The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, Toys, and Sphere, among others. So all Barry Levinson films. Yeah, basically. Um, I think he did Envy, too, and yeah, a lot of uh, Levinson. Gilda Radner played Gloria Link. She was an original Not Ready for Primetime player on NBC's Saturday Night Live. Earlier this year, she lent her voice to an animated TV movie called The Animal Olympics. She just stopped billing, too. Yeah, she does. And she was briefly considered for Olive Oil earlier this year, but had to drop out when they couldn't schedule production around the upcoming SNL season. We also mentioned her in our review of Stir Crazy because the Gene Wilder film was rewritten after Pryor dropped out to make room for Gilda to be his love interest for the story. 
She was also in The Last Detail, as well as The Woman in Red and Haunted Honeymoon, both directed by her hanky-panky co-star and husband, Gene Wilder. She unfortunately passed away of ovarian cancer at the age of 42. Bob Newhart was President Manfred Link. He was also Major Major in Buck Henry's Catch-22. He provides the voice of Bernard in The Rescuers and Rescuers Down Under. Obviously, he's in lots of TV shows named after himself, and he's Papa Elf in Elf. Madeline Kahn was Mrs. Constance Link. She also appears in What's Up Doc, written by Buck Henry. She's Trixie Delight in Paper Moon, Lily Von Stoop in Blazing Saddles, Elizabeth in Young Frankenstein. Earlier this year, she was in a film called Happy Birthday Gemini, adapted from the play Gemini, but it doesn't look like it's screened anywhere outside of New York. This year, we have also seen her for very brief and wasted appearances in Simon, which was remade as our previous film, and Holy Moses. She's back next year in History of the World Part 1. She's also in Yellowbeard, Clue, An American Tale, and Bug's Life. And depressingly, she also succumbed to ovarian cancer at 57 years young. Richard Benjamin played Press Secretary Bunthorne. He was Major Danby in Catch-22. This is his last of four films this year, after Witch's Brew, How to Beat the High Cost of Living, also starring Fred Willard, and The Last Married Couple, also starring Bob Dishy. We'll see him next year in Saturday the 14th, and he's obviously directed a bunch, but we've gone over those. Bob Dishy played Vice President William Shockley. He was Howard in Last Married Couple earlier this year. He's one of the divorced couples. Harvey Corman played Ambassador Spender. He was Captain Blythe in Herbie Goes Bananas earlier this year, and he'll also be back for History of the World Part 1 with Madeline Kahn next year, with whom he had also appeared in Blazing Saddles. He's also the voice of the Great Gazoo. Austin Pendleton was Dr. Alexander Grade. He also appeared in Catch-22, as well as the Muppet movie alongside Madeline Kahn. He's the head of the company that made Johnny Five in Short Circuit. He's Gurgle in Finding Nemo, and he was one of the scientists working in the sensory deprivation chamber in Simon, not in Altered States. Rip Torn was General G.E. Dumpston. He's Zed in the Men in Black movies. He's Tom Green's dad in Freddy Got Fingered. He's Arthur on the Larry Sanders Show, and he's Patches O'Houlihan in Dodgeball. We last saw him in One Trick Pony. Fred Willard played presidential assistant Feebleman. He's Ed Harkin in the Anchorman movies. He's in a bunch of Christopher Guest stuff, and we lost him this year. Keep your eyes peeled. His last project was oh. Space Force. <laughs> no, that's just, that's no he's good dead. Taste. <clears throat> Sorry, he's dead. Uh, <laughs> so he's dead. <laughs> well, that's it. His last project was Space Force, which I just heard got renewed for a second season this year. So uh, what does that mean? One season left? What does Netflix do? Three seasons before they unceremoniously cancel everything? He was also in How to Beat the High Cost of Living this year with Richard Benjamin. They were two of the husbands uh, in that film. Julius Harris played Ambassador Longo. He was Teehee in Live and Let Die. He's Inspector Daniels in Pelham 123, Gravedigger in Darkman, Boan in King Kong, which I thought we were going to have like a King Kong moment in this movie for yeah. a little bit where they were like, oh, you're a virgin? The camera points over their shoulders like everyone's looking at some giant monster that's going to come out, mm-hmm. but it's just a statue coming out of the ground. We also had him earlier this year as Fred the Chef in Gorp. Roger Bowen played Senator William Wild Bill Hubley. He appeared earlier this year in a different Patreon war movie, MASH, as Lieutenant Colonel Blake. Bobby Porter played the Rhode Island Senator 
He played Mini-Max, the shrunken double of Maxwell Smart in the Nude Bomb earlier this year. He'll also appear as a ventriloquist next year in Under the Rainbow. He's a monster kid in Night of the Comet, a zombie kid in Return of the Living Dead, and his earliest credit was as Cornelius in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Chow Li Chi played the Chinese ambassador. Earlier this year, we saw him as Jackie Chan's father in Battle Creek Brawl. He's Uncle Chu in Big Trouble in Little China. He was in 213 episodes of Falcon Crest, credited strangely as Chow Li Chi, his actual name. I don't know why that is, unless he's playing himself on that show. I never saw Falcon Crest. He's also June's father in Joy Luck Club, and more recently, his final film credit was as Chung Ling Su, the elderly magician character in Christopher Nolan's best film, The Prestige, the one that hides the fishbowl mm. between his legs as he crawls into the theater. Miriam Flynn played Feebleman's secretary. She's Cousin Eddie's wife in the vacation movies. She also provides the voice of Grandma Longneck for the bulk of the Land Before Time series, as well as Taz's mom on the Tasmanian Devil Show. Tony Plana was the White House gardener that gets attacked outside. He's also Jefe in The Three Amigos. But yeah, it, it falls flat. The editing is really slow. Um, especially like that whole last sequence where they're waving to people. They hold on the shot of them just waving from the top of the car for like 30 seconds. And Madeline Kahn is like gritting her teeth, but just like, why are we still doing this? Why are you still rolling? Buck, like you can cut. Yeah, the, the editing on this movie was, was bad. But the editor has a bunch of good movies on his list. Yeah, but not at this time. I, yeah, I mean... It, this feels like it was supposed to be a TV thing. He did My Bodyguard. Yeah, I didn't like that. <laughs> I liked it. I know you did. Yeah, I but, did not like this movie. <laughs> no. But after that... Okay, so our editor here, Stu Linder. Yeah, he had good stuff. He had good stuff. Toys, quiz show, sleepers, sphere. Yeah, Rain Man. Good morning, Vietnam. It's good stuff on there. Yeah, but uh, but uh, this was a learning experience for him, I guess. Um, or maybe not. Maybe it was a not learning experience. But either way, when you have this many really genuinely funny people in the same movie together, it almost never works out. Um, especially if you're trying to make it an ensemble piece where all of them have lines all the time. Like if they're coming in and out of the story, it might have been a little bit safer. But if you're giving every single one of them a line in every scene it's just it's not going to work because people have different ideas of what's funny the energy is going to change from character to character um I, I feel bob newhart's comedy in general is completely different from like harvey corman's type of comedy where harvey corman is very big and in the scene and chews the scenery and and has a lot of like speeches and and facial expressions where bob newhart is always like more like charles groden but charles groden and and bob newhart i think they both work better as the straight man yeah mm -hmm. and he is though in this movie i think not completely with the exception of his bizarre racism yeah which is just uncomfortable because there's not someone bouncing off of him going oh can we not say that in front of the cameras like there's nobody correcting it but yeah i mean i i do like bob newhart i like richard benjamin fred willard And, and richard benjamin is is perfectly fine in this movie um i do like the one scene where where he's asking for permission to can i leak something can i deny something (laughs) like like he 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 just looking for the tools yeah he wants to really like just like get the opportunity to use his like wheelhouse of uh, misinformation 
Um, I think Fred Willard didn't really get to uh, do much. But that's that was the same problem that I had in uh, How to Beat the High Cost of Living, which was that Fred Willard is playing too much of a straight man. He doesn't get to say silly things. Right. And we basically don't see Rip Torn after the pumpkin costume. Correct. He's gone from the story there. But yeah, as soon as he said, you're definitely not going to see me in a costume later. It's like they might as well have had the whole screen flip around like a right. panel like this was a TV show. Which I, I do believe this was originally planned as a TV special or something. There's no way this was supposed to be in theaters like this. It would need to be... How long was it, though? That's the crazy thing. It's it's barely an hour and a half, right? It's like an hour 34. Yeah. Um, but there's also, like, stuff that's in there that couldn't be on television. So you'd have to... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's the longest 94-minute movie. We missed a credit. Who? Tony Basil. She was the choreographer on this movie. And I'm trying to imagine... I mean, aside from the native dancing, what there other... There was a lot of that. I, in, in so Upper I, Gorm. Yeah, no, I know. But I'm just saying, that is that what she choreographed? I don't know, I guess. I was just thinking that now the, uh, the guy who played Longo... His two movies, the one he was in Gorp and one he was in Gorm. Mm. That's interesting. But yeah, uh, thumbs down. Oh, yeah. Way down. It's All pretty right. damn low. I didn't really want to watch this while I was watching it. So I pretty much never want to watch it again. Yeah. I have it at 163. Out of 168. Out of 168 and for And it's the not going to move because this is the last movie of the year. It is below Falling in Love Again and above Coast to Coast. So you have it just below the bottom of my list. Richard, where's this going? I have this at number 158, uh, just below Running Scared and just above Loose Shoes. Okay. I have it at 161, which is just under Up the Academy and just above Nothing Personal. But I think that's everything for First Family. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing... 1980 in its entirety with just sort of you know trivia tidbits and connections between movies and stuff it should be neat uh that'll be dropping on the 31st of december so stay tuned for that and then we'll be jumping right into 1981 next year um we have some big plans for expansion we'll probably go (laughs) further in detail uh in our 1980 year-end special don't laugh at me i know we're already doing too much but we have some things that we're adding to uh to our output And I think it'll be fun for people. So uh, check in. That's dropping December 31st. And uh, what should we leave them with? What do we do here? Just the trailer for the first movie of next year? No. You know what I'll do? Your outro is going to be... The new intro? The new intro. Ah, good call. The the montage clip of our uh, 1981 quote. Well, because I don't know if people have noticed, but the intro clip is only composed 
of movies from, from this year. From this from nineteen eighty specifically. Yes. So eighty one will need to be just clips from nineteen eighty one movies. So when you hear weird clips start playing next time, don't be concerned that you're listening to the wrong podcast. You're still listening to the only podcast that matters. <laughs> it's just got new clips at the front. I'm sorry it's not gonna start with the, the Peter Gunn theme forever. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Jesse's very upset about that. I'll sad. try to start with a musical quote or something. I think so we you get, have to. Yeah. We'll see what we can do. Anyway, I leave you now with a montage of 1981 quotes that will be ringing in the new episodes. Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No!